she might look at us and say, oh, yeah, okay, maybe there's something a little elitist in my rendering of the political sphere, something that's But exclusive. consider the alternative, yeah. But consider the alternative. You yeah. guys don't even have that. Everybody <laughs> just works. <laughs> you don't even have elitism. You don't even have an like, elite sphere. <laughs> philosophy. I'm Will. Here with me today is Lillian. Hi. Gil. Hello. And Owen. What's good? So, oh boy. Today we have um, a special treat for us, I suppose. We are reading Hannah Arendt. Um, for today's reading, uh, I asked us to read a section from The Human Condition where Hannah Rentio separates out the public, private, and social sphere. So by way of intro, um, because Gil kind of asked for this, I'm going to try my best to say what, what problem Hannah Arendt takes it that she is trying to solve. And the problem it seems to me that she's trying to solve is that, you know, Arendt thinks that a, a well-functioning, let's say, world requires, you know, the spheres of, of private life, such as the home, of the public, where we would consider politics, and I was holding off on saying the social because it's actually really notoriously unclear what she means by the social, but it should all be in a proper relationship to one another. That, you know, each of these spheres have, have their own prerequisites and criteria for action. And for her, it, it seems to me what she worries about is um, what she thinks of as the public space where we can distinguish ourselves, engage in virtues such as a courage and glory is increasingly being submitted to the dictates of what she calls the social. Now, what she means by the social, the best way to understand it is, at least from what I was getting from both the human condition and I also did a bit of extra reading on um, Reflections on Little Rock, is pretty much the private sphere uh, running amok. You know, the private sphere in which you engage with your family, which you, you engage with um, bonds of sentiment, et cetera, that, you know, the private sphere wherein it's not about distinction. Instead, it is about conforming to a particular group identity. For her, the rise of the social, or she uses this language almost like, you know, the social is metastasizing. It's a growing beyond control, is the place of conformity. It's a place where instead of engaging with what she thinks, and we'll have to get into why she thinks proper politics is distinction and individuality and feats uh, uh, amongst one's equals, instead it's become about concerns about mob rule, you know, the necessities of life that she thinks, you know, are a necessary condition for politics, but should not be the aim of politics. So it, I, it strikes me that Arendt wants to restore order to the world, if I wanted to put it that <laughs> way. What I find rather puzzling about Arendt is, one, why she allies the social with this notion of mob rule and this problem of life processes that she thinks shouldn't be the aim of politics. Why is that the case? But, you know, another thing that I find puzzling is, you know, um, on Reflections on Little Rock, as opposed to the human condition, she's not as hostile to the social. In fact, you know, her issue with you know, forced integration uh, in the 1950s and 1960s is that this is abrogating the right of the social to choose with whom one associates. And so she goes back and forth between the social is like, you know, this glob that's, you know, metastasizing and almost making impossible the space of politics and appearance. And on the other hand, is something to be preserved because we need to be able to, to prejudicially choose who we associate with and uh, uh, what we want to, to follow. And so that's my way of introduction of saying, like, it seems like crucial to a rent is having a specific understanding of the political as a place of, of virtue and individuality. And she wants to conserve what she takes to be this very fragile place. And that means bracketing out and choosing what properly belongs in politics and what should be kept in the shadows of the private sphere or the social sphere. So... Just to kind of open, and maybe this is a bit too broad, do we find, what do we find persuasive about how Hannah Arendt carves up the world between the private, 
the social, and the public or political. You'll see, I, um, I constrained you all by saying, what do we find persuasive? <laughs> so, you know? yeah. I am, uh, I'm holding the barbarians back from the gate, as it were. That's right. <laughs> so I definitely think that she's right that there has been a kind of progressive atrophying of anything resembling a public sphere. We could debate why that is and why, you know, by and large, the social as the sphere of economic activity and as the sphere of consumption and production has kind of taken over or in her language, like usurped what ought to be a public sphere that is free of those concerns and is about deliberation, action, political activities, etc. cetera. Um, it's, I guess, questionable what has gotten us to that point or why there has been an, atro why there has been an atrophying of, of, uh, of publics, let's say in the plural. I think I don't, I don't want to go immediately to the negative here, but I don't really buy, or at least I'm off put by the idea that it's like modernity, like this kind of epochal explanation uh, as to like mm. why we've seen this atrophying of the public and this rise of the social and the elevation and inflation of like private concerns into like the main concerns of our collective lives. It probably has a lot more to do with actually historical, historically determinate processes changes in economics and capitalism has to do with historical phenomenon. Like I don't colonialism and imperialism, the history of patriarchy. Like it's the epochal explanation for what's going on that I think sometimes that annoys me. And, I, and especially I think because it becomes so prominent in a Gombin who reads, takes over from a rent um, and um. a number of other thinkers who speak about history as in these like, you know, these discrete epochs and then we privilege certain epochs over others. Like ours kind of sucks, but like the Greek polis ruled, we should go back to doing, I don't know. Does that make sense? There's a we bit of a trans, there's a trans historical vibe Greeks. about it that, or an ahistorical always, vibe about it that bugs me. It's always the Greeks with these apocal people. Always. That's true. So here's like a, a one way of motivating what she's talking about. What I see in Arendt and what has made her, I think, very difficult for political theory to place ideologically is that she has this concurrence of several different critiques of modernity and almost capitalism that are attractive across the political spectrum. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. she has a critique that should be very familiar to critical theory. So if you're interested in the Frankfurt School, it's like she has this critique of mass society as, mm -hmm. as a social, like it's making us into these animals that are becoming increasingly isolated and also increasingly the same. And so she has this problem with our inability to distinguish ourselves and to engage in, in politics. And this is an interesting problem in the post-war era, because that's where you get this mass conformity and the worry about the conservatism of the Western working class and so on. Okay. And then this should resonate with anyone who's read Marcuse or Adorno or whatever. This is the concern of them all. And then she has these other concerns that, I mean, no, the same problem resonates in a different way for Republicans. You know, the idea that, that a market society, like, a market economy shouldn't become a market society, that the political mm -hmm. state, the, pol yes. the political realm should be strong enough to control that and to regulate it and, um, and so on. And then there is capital C conservative fears of the erosion of the foundation of order. And, and these are all critiques of modernity that like have different points of emphasis. And I think historically, at least from my impression in political theory, is the reason people feel fascinated with Arendt is that she's not easily put into one of these categories, but she seems to resonate with these concerns. And especially mm. because she has this obsession with politics as the place of plurality, where you're able to engage in this distinct activity of speech and action and able to be recognized by your peers to distinguish yourself, to cultivate virtue. And this kind of reciprocity and living in plurality is something that's also very attractive to liberals. So th that I think is like yeah. basically the basis of her appeal. And if I'm being generous, I think she says some, she makes some interesting points about that, about what is distinctive about political action and 
and so on. And like, you know, to the more radical crew, it is worth wondering, like, as we said last week with Ron Sierra, like what is political, um, the opposite point of view where everything is political runs into its limits. And so she becomes, you know, somebody who tries to, to, to work that out, I guess. That's really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. And like, so the, the sort of historical shift that she's describing for one reason or another, and right, we all have our takes about like why this has taken place is like that there was once a clean, a cleaner, at least distinction between the private and the public. And one of the characteristic features of this thing called modernity is this kind of like explosion of the private outwards into the, yeah. into public life. And this is, seems to be something like what she means by the quote social, right? She like begins this discussion of the social by being like, Hey, actually, that's a really weird way to translate that. Like, you know, even in who is it like Aquinas tr translates, uh, like, you know, the, the homo politicus is like homo socialis. Mm -hmm. And it's like, what's this, th this new thing called the social didn't exist actually. Um, and I, I get it too. Like, I agree. Like there does seem to need to be some kind of way of distinguishing between those things that are and are not political. And also to, to agree with you again, like the kind of resonance with like a Frankfurt style critique, like there is a, a sense of a concern about something like alienation, right? An alienated condition wherein like we over identify with this like social mass at the same time that we think that we have discovered this new thing called like our intimacy, like our like individual mm -hmm. and individuality, but there's loneliness. something, but it's lonely. Right. Yeah. And I liked actually really quite a bit the, her reading of Rousseau in this chapter is like this, the person who like diagnoses this condition maybe earliest. And it's true. Like Rousseau is such a cool and contradictory figure. We're going to have to do an episode on him at some point, but like, you know, he's on the one hand, like this thinker, this great thinker of like, modern democratic plurality. And also he's this like terrified, lonely individual who like hates it, right? You know, even in like his social contract, like if your individual will disagrees with the general will, you are wrong. And you get the feeling that he's like, actually, I don't like this at all, but it's not clear like what, what's outside of that, mm -hmm. given the sort of present coordinates of how I want to say society is organized <laughs> the world. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I should confessional confessional mode. I'm clearly like exactly uh, trapped within the coordinates she's trying to diagnose. So like I have a difficult <laughs> time with some of these concepts. Yeah, I agree with with both of like Lillian and Gil what you're saying. I think the issue with like specifying politics or the political like there's the kind of clue specifying the political the way she does is that there's something kind of static about it, right? Like she's really into the fact that like polis originally meant something like an encirclement, a wall. And the, and like, I guess like the word town and even the Latin urbus, they have these similar etymological connotations with like an enclosure. And she's always talking about the importance of like fencing in these various realms, right? And so she turns the political, the social, the private into these inviolable kind of realms. Um, My girl and loves that, a good dichotomy. I've never met a political thinker <laughs> yeah. who liked dichotomies True. as much as her. Arendt never saw a distinction she couldn't make. Sometimes that, like, she wasn't going to be That's because she's a good to. Kantian. That's because she's a good Kantian. Kantian loved to, you know, divide things oh, up. Oh, yeah, together. But I guess, like, a, so the difference with, like, the difference with, like, Ranciere, though, right, is that, like, Ranciere never tries to delimit, who we talked about last episode, right? He never tries to delimit a sphere ontologically as, like, this is the sphere where the, where what politics is happens, right? He tries to say that politics is a process. It's actually the opposite for him, right? It's a, it's a process of, like, rupturing these enclosures, right, of... Mm -hmm changing what counts and as political mm -hmm. and changing who counts as a valid political actor. You know, like Arendt is into this notion that politics is done in a kind of elite sphere of equals and it can't be something that's done on a mass. Is no, it no, an no, elitist hold on, though? Hold on. No, I'm just going to, okay. I'm going to just say the, the big Arendtian mystery and then I want Will to have that reaction like after this. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I'll conserve it. We'll just put a pin in put that. An, put an asterisk on that comment. So I think that the big Arentian mystery is the way that she justifies this idea of politics as the realm of freedom as opposed to the social and these other distinctions on the basis of a dis one more distinction between freedom and necessity. So 
the private and the social is the realm of necessity and politics mm -hmm. is the realm of freedom. Why does she think this? Because in ancient Greece, she said it was so. So she writes that Aristotle, when he, following Plato, tentatively assumed that at least the historical origin of the polis must be connected with the necessity of life and only its content or inherent aim or telos transcends life in the good life. And then as far as members of the polis are concerned, household life exists for the sake of the good life in the polis. The basis of all of these distinctions is that in ancient Greece, some people labored so that other people could engage in politics. And this isn't something I think that's controversial in like interpretations of ancient philosophy. They were quite clear about this. And it's only with modernity that this assumption changes, that anything anyone else enters the stage of history or politics. The bigger Rentian mystery, as I keep saying, is how this, which is undeniably a conservative with a big C in modernity, but then an ancient society was an aristocratic landholding class of people engaging in politics for their own sake, how that gets translated into political theory of today as the maximally inclusive way of thinking about inclusive politics. Like that is what contemporary political theorists have done. And I mm. think it's worth understanding her appeal and people's like desire and impulse to make that transition happen. Yeah. I, I think that that's, um, that is the million dollar question. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to, you know, pull back on my, isn't that elitist? Because maybe it's a bit too early in the episode to bring <laughs> knives out. But, you know, for all y'all who are going to get after me, I have read a lot of Arendt. The Arendt that you might not have liked that I read, like On Violence, Reflections on Little Rock. So here's the thing. I think that she uses this, you know, conception she has of politics. So it's all fine and good. She's just doing this in the human condition. And she's just like, here's a rather formalistic, yes, formalistic ontological categories of the, the political, the social, et cetera. Things run into issues with her when she tries to put that to work. When she tries to engage in her own form of political intervention, her own form of distinctiveness, by marking out where she thinks things are going wrong because you know, um, there's been a transgression of the political. So my, my big example is Reflections on Little Rock. She doesn't know what to make of the school, where it turns out it's a mix of actually the private because children are in the home, the social because it's, you know, it's a place of association, and obviously the government is invested in you know, what's happening in schools. And so here she just gets maximally confused. Mm. She doesn't actually understand what the political stakes are, so she assumes that most black people trying to integrate, they're social climbers. She literally says this. She says, I wouldn't want the state to force me into social climbing. But that's because she can only see that because for her, politics is very distinctive, you know, almost um, act of gymnastics, of showing one's virtuosity in speech and action, while what these other people are doing that must be simply like you're know, grubbing at social status and I thought so we weren't pulling know, the knives out yet <laughs> i mean i mean so if i want to bring it back i want to say something like but you know her critique of like you know, conformism and this distinction she makes between behavior and action i could see wanting to make something of that mm -hmm. you know yeah, yeah, um, okay. um not to like be too contemporary like if a rent were still alive today she'd probably look at twitter and be like that's the social right there now, i warn you y'all yeah. like, think y'all think that's politics and you and y'all think that's politics right yeah I'm with so her. like totally. here's giving her her flowers if she had looked at twitter and been like you know hey why would you all think that's politics? Look, that's just mass reflexive behavior and y'all are just looking to simp, then yes. But when she, when she actually has to put these concepts to work, reality doesn't actually, you know, it, it doesn't make itself available to her. And so she makes these arbitrary cuts and then it makes you ask, well, what do you actually think politics it, with actually existing people, not whatever the Greeks were doing in your imagination, what is it? And you're, as Lillian said, it's a mystery. It's a bit of a mystery. And I think also, last thing I will say, it's hard to place her in a political camp because I also just think, and this is my hot take, I think that Arendt is so anti-conformist, she doesn't want to be placed in a, in a particular mm -hmm. camp. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this is her way of being whatever she is. It's Arendt. 
So yeah, she even liberal. insists really strongly yeah. that she's not a philosopher. She doesn't want to be called a philosopher. She's a political theorist. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's right. I mean, in the human condition, right, there's that critique that you alluded to of behaviorism and the social sciences in general. And even what seems almost like a kind of nascent critique of like opinion polls and the idea of measuring. You love that? What's that? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. Well, I was well, down. The other shoe's about to drop, though, right? Because okay. she has this critique of like the social sciences being the like intellectual index of the rise of society. And we measure behavioral patterns and we reduce the population down to kind of animal level of inclinations. And so it seems at that point that she's like really taking issue with this way of statistically framing populations and, and flattening collective life down to just its social dimension in her vocabulary. But then like in the reflections on Little Rock, she starts talking about how, well, you know, the opinion polls amongst the white people in Virginia say that like 92% of them are against segregation and they won't, they don't really plan on like following these desegregation edicts and laws. So like, I don't know, we don't want mob rule. We better respect what these white, what these white folks in Virginia, what they want. You know what I mean? So like, where, yeah. I'm sorry, but that's, again, when she tries to take these like really clean tripartite or binary distinctions and try to work on some actual positions in the world, they end up coming to, I think, some pretty, some pretty, let's say, controversial or silly conclusions. Like, Yeah, one way of putting all of this is like a kind of persistent confusion that I have when I try to like think about this stuff, is that like I can see, I wonder whether or not there is a way to use these categories at all, or whether they're structurally kind of such that you can only use them in this sort of way that is disqualifying of something as political, right? So let me, mm. let me, so to, to, to explain what I mean, like I could see why someone would look at some kind of act or action or speech or claim and say, that actually isn't political. That's just the social, like, you know, it's you're on Twitter. I almost can't come up with an example of someone doing someone, something like this, where you're like, aha, not social. That's actually political. Right. Like I, I, it never seems to work in the other way. Like, so when mm, I think about this, like, isn't that like kind of what the, like the argument that the personal is political was meant to do in the first place. It's just now we take that for granted. Yeah, I think so. But like, you know, I like my, like, you know, I'm, I'm a fool version of this question is like, all right. So like, we're not going to talk about economy, right? Like this is a big deal for her. She's got a lot of gripes with Marx and like, you know, we, of course we all know economia comes from household. We don't want household affairs to be spilling out into the public. That's not politics. I hear this as being essentially like, stop talking about, stop talking about like political economy is a phrase. She even says like, doesn't even make sense. And it's we just don't, yeah. it's yeah. an incoherent. Yeah. It's a syntagm that like we should bristle at, but we don't how, how, bamboozled we are by modernity or whatever um bamboozled we've been bamboozled we've been hoodwinked right (laughs) but like okay i like just like imagine like two perfect like arentian political figures and they're like they get together in public and they're like we're not talking about anything from our private lives and we're not talking about political economy and we're not talking about anything social like what do they talk about what do they talk what do they say to each other (laughs) great words and deeds i mean okay yeah like <laughs> nice point, Gil. What do they say to each other? But I think the Arantian answer, I'm I'm gonna try to do How my to keep best everyone going, else but, out of the conversation. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I would, that was the joke that, I was about to make because that's so good. That is at least 50% of what goes on in the Arantian public sphere. How, how, how to shut those other people up. Like, There's a hole in the wall over there. Someone needs oh to go patch God. it up. Like, you know. <laughs> like, okay. Oh, okay, man. I was going to say, but I try to do my best own, but I don't have anywhere near Owen's stamina. So it seems to me like, you know, it's not even what they say. When Arendt talks about, you know, um, excellent itself, uh, um, Arete as the Greeks, Virtu as the Romans would have called it had always been assigned to the public realm where one could excel. It seems like actually, you know, politics is about an art for a rent, how yeah. well you are able to, you know, um, to speak and do and exemplify yourself. Of course, you know, it can't be about how well you're able to simply persuade people because, you know, a rent has issues with, with, uh, with lying, but it's actually, you know, I, <laughs> the thing that keeps coming in my head is I'm thinking about, you know, Gil's constant joke about Foucault and the gymnasiums, but it, it is this though. It is a style. 
And so it seems like a, mm -hmm. a rent is you know, looking for you. Know, she's almost like, where are our, our masters? And by masters, I mean, we're the cool people who can do politics well. We just got schlubs now and mobs and black people trying to go to schools with white people. <laughs> and so I, does, I think that you know, there isn't content to what they say to one another, except it's just it's how they do it, how they exemplify themselves before their fellow equals. This is why I think it's not clear that it's at all going to be possible to use these categories in a non-conservative way, right? Like, because there's no way, there's no way to look at someone making a claim like this and be like, no, that's the, your style's bad. Hence, you're not really doing politics without it being kind of con essentially conservative or elitist, right? Like, like where are the norms, where are the implicit norms of the style or the art coming from? Might be one way to put the question. It seems, I mean, seems kind of like Irish bourgeois society or salons or I don't know. It it's not coming from the working class. I I can tell you that. That um, seems it's, definitely true. It's Aristotle, maybe. <laughs> I mean, I guess one thing you could say is like, okay, if we look at the history of certain struggles, or if we take the example of like worker struggles, for a rent, I mean, maybe there's some truth in saying that. They're not like a union isn't inherently political, let's say, right? For in a rent's language, right? It might be that it's just about kind of like workplace housekeeping and it's about meeting the necessities. There's a kind of like basically a she balance says that, of power. It's like housekeeping. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like there's a balance of power in a workplace or in a factory or in a whatever it might be. And it kind of settles into place. And as long as people are meeting their like necessities, there's a balance of power that, you know, everyone knows is in play. And like, you know, wages are decent enough to eat and you got benefits and stuff like for her, that's all. Th there's something different. Let's not necessarily go all the way with her and say that nothing about that is political. But I think we can say well, that there's something different about that. There's something different about that, right? Admi when it becomes administrative, exactly. And like when one can tell, one can really discern that a kind of public is forming at a workplace in which like they're, what's mm, being discussed okay. and what's being put into motion are principles and actions that outstrip just concerns about like pay and stuff, right? Like, mm. um, and, and, yeah. I, and I think, I don't know, does that, is, I don't know if that example helps to illustrate it, but I, yeah, maybe without going all the way and saying, oh, well, everything to do with unions or the, if, it, if it's just about your pay or your wages or whatever, that's just kind of like social stuff to keep that, you know, there's nothing political about that. But you might, I think you can still draw some distinctions and say that there's a moment when a union gets politicized. And what happens when, when that politicizing happens, let's say, is that it takes on some of these features that Arendt describes, in which a public is constituted, in which more is at stake than, than just the, the meeting of needs, which... You know, I don't Can agree I that that's question? not political, but, you know, I'm just trying to be, yeah. Can groups be political for a rent? Every, you know, the, mm. Whenever I think about the mm. things I like about rent, I actually really like the stuff where she's just like, you know, what confirms our reality is appearing before others. That even, you yeah. know, the most shadowy dreams that we have take on reality when, you know, we can exemplify them before others. And of course, this destroys some, some virtues like, you know, she's, uh, she's really against love. In politics, she's just like, you know, keep that shit behind closed yeah. doors. You know, that's not going to work. And so, you know, I really like also this idea that, you know, um, that the public is the space in which we can appear and be confirmed in our reality by our other fellows and our other equals. But, you know, and, you know, I might get flamed on this, but it just seems as if politics for her necessarily, it is what individuals perform before other individuals. And that, you know, groups, and this is something, you know, the reason why I thought about this is, you know, when unions become politicized, I, I mean, I wonder if Arendt would think, you know, perhaps it's politics insofar as there's like a, a particularly well-spoken, hot and sexy, because when she says appearances, she actually means literal. We oh, learned some reflections yeah. on Little Rock when she's just like, black people can't change the color of their skin, and y'all want to skip over that, but that's what we see. And like. Okay, I'm, I don't know why that's so important to you, but got <laughs> it. Great. Cool. And, you know, they perform this great act of oratory. And, you know, they exemplify their qualities. And so it seems as if, you know, politics is where the individual can make their stamp before other people. But groups can't allow that type of distinctiveness. Uh, I don't know no? if that's true. I don't know if that's true. I mean, like, I, I see your point and I, and I share the concern, but I would think that at least in principle, if it's, it seems as though like actually individuals 
distinguish themselves. Like this action in public is this individuating thing that you do, okay. right? Mm -hmm. I, I think it seems that way to me at least, mm -hmm. right? Like this is this is why it's so important to do to have this like performative element, this aspect. And if that's the case, I don't see why a group couldn't also distinguish itself. I mean, in I guess the same it, it sort of way. Well, I mean, it depends. I think because she, you know, she the metaphor she gives for the public is the table. Right. She says that you need to imagine mm -hmm. a, a political public as a table that both relates and separates. It separates, yes. Right? right. And so like I think she might think that group action or group formation doesn't sufficiently separate. It relates really intensely, but it doesn't sufficiently separate to be like again, I, I think she's always worried that mobs are going to become the agent, uh, are going to become powerful, right? Um, and so I think her worry with groups would be that, yeah, if if the desire is to make groups political, then you're going to end up with like contending mobs and not with individuals trying to distinguish themselves. I mean, maybe one way to help clarify the discussion is to ask and go to go back to Lillian's like comments about her wide appeal too. Is what kind of individualist is Arendt, or is she an individualist? Because I think that helps to better situate her in a lot of those dis in a lot of discourses because. I think what makes what prevents her from just being dismissed as a kind of liberal, right? And I don't mean dismissed politically, just kind of like put into that camp in a clean way or something, is that she is very interested in the questions of like commonness and pub and like mm -hmm. the public and mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. spaces She's into that pluralism, are like radical exa pluralism. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. think that that's the appeal, though. Like, so there's this worry during the Cold War about totalitarianism. And, you know, she writes the book, obviously, The Origins of Totalitarianism, but the conclusions of that book, as far as I can surmise, is a very kind of cold warrioring position, which is like, whatever is interesting or controversial of her account of like the origins of totalitarianism, what she certainly thinks is that communism and fascism are two sides of the same coin. And so like the interest in plurality that she has that the starting point for politics is that you can't choose who you live with. You don't choose who you come to share the world with. And therefore, you have to engage in these acts of like kind of almost radical creating commonness out of this radical position of plurality. And her insistence that you can't escape that condition by, you know, with the behavior, like, you know, She's against the behavioral sciences and skeptical of economics because she thinks that it tries to supersede this original ontological position of plurality. And from what I can tell mm -hmm. is like left liberal political philosophers, I'm thinking of Shayla Ben-Habib, for example, have you know, really been inspired by this to argue for this kind of like open cosmopolitanism. Um, a way of thinking about univer the universal foundations of uh, morals and uh, ethics that doesn't slide into particularism, but is fundamentally open and forward-looking in this like world construction that we're all doing mm -hmm. together. Mm -hmm. And this is what is presumably cl closed off by both fascism and communism. And like, I think that feeling that people, what makes her attractive to people is that feeling that like she's offering this third way and people start getting yeah. like really excited about this radical openness to the future, about the idea of new foundations in a moment in which like we're all existentially in doubt about having any kind of project, but it's this radically like contingent kind of project. We have to keep refounding. We're not aiming for socialism. We're not trying to close off the nation state. We're just continuously in this process of refounding. And I think this was like radically energizing for like a generation of people. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And that's really great. And it's just like you, and, and I also think that there's something that's a, what's attractive um, with Arendt is that, you know, she doesn't offer like a grand narrative. For her, there is something also, you know, I think intrinsically tragic in the political insofar as, you know, mm -hmm. it, you know it will never be done. 
it will never you know reach some um you know type of endpoint. That also is what allows natality, you know, um, one of her um, favorite concepts to continually emerge. The reason I made the comment about groups is because one of her famous you know uh, lines from the Human Condition is you know her her claim that you know there isn't man, there are men, there is plurality. You know, and we can never forget that. And so maybe there are fragile moments wherein we can act in concert with one another, but that's certainly not the same as fusing into a group and acting, you know, as a group. It is, you know, individuals who for a moment are coming together to do something. But the question that, you know, and I get it, we don't get it because we're only reading, we only read one chapter of the human condition, but, you know, this whole idea of refounding the public space, like this all sounds like nice language, but what, what is that? You know, so what is the refounding of this space that allows us to appear with one another? And this again seems to be where you know the the, the ontological and the 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 practical political it gets it gets at least rather muddy in my head. And so it's like, for what reason are we constantly refounding this space that binds me and separates me from others, except in the name of there should be this space that binds me and separates me from others, because nice. this is freedom. But then when I try to give content to this freedom, it is the appearing before other people. And so you, you start to lose the grist for the mill, and it can seem as if, yeah, you know, there isn't actually, a, um, if we want to put this way, a political ideology in a rent. It is, no, we just need to constantly be creating this space again and again. And I'm just not sure what creating this space means. It's really good. And this is actually a more general sort of issue that I've found. It's This is not specific at all to a rent. This is a ton and tons of different thinkers and political philosophers, whenever they try to do political theory or political philosophy that has like this ontological character or support where you're making ontological claims about X or Y is political or non-political or social or what have you. Because the, the problem is if that's true, if it is truly the case that like human beings are ontologically X or Y way or like being or politics or society are in an ontological way, the way they're being described, then it sort of seems like job done. You know, it's not clear how we could then have problems, right? It's not clear like what the issue could then be. In other words, like in this particular case, as you were just pointing out, well, it's like, well, we are in fact always separate and related, right? We are in this condition of plurality. And that actually, if ontologically true, I don't see what like bad version of organizing a society could possibly do to change that. Right. Like that's maybe something we're forgetful of in certain moments, but it certainly can't be undone if it's actually a constitutive ontological feature of things, which makes it then difficult to see, you know, what like the action item could be for a political theory when it's this got got this like ontological character. I think the ac the action item is I'm going to just reference Ben Habib again for like people who are more left leaning that have made use of this is like mm -hmm. a theory of rights, like a, like almost pre like a right to have rights, like rights right, that right, right. precede other rights. So you can kind of, you know, you can blend it with a, do a little Kantian sprinkling on top and then you <laughs> sprinkle get a little Kant in there. Yeah. Sprinkle a little Kant. And I don't mean this to like be pejorative necessarily. I, I'm just describing it. Like you fuse mm -hmm. this with some Kant and you know, later at the, like later she gives those lectures on judgment with Kant. So she get, creates some fodder for this. And then you get this, like, not only is it an ontological truth, you get this normative project as well. We're all, ju we're judging beings. We're always these law making beings. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I get that, but it just seems like you also have to strip away other things that she says. Like, you know, it, it either, yeah, I think it's in this chapter, not the reflections on, on, on Little Rock. She also seems to express, um, you know, a worry that, you know, the, the, the political space also should be delimited. And maybe this is, you know, how Sheila Ben-Habib, you know, appropriates Arendt, but, you know, um, should be delimited to those who are like your know, proper citizens. Like, you know, she worries about, you know, illicit appearances from those who don't properly belong there. And it seems to me that, so I, I get it, refounding the open space, but it also seems to me Arendt does not think that we are trying to, at all men, plurality on the planet, should be brought into a single political space. She, I think she thinks that that wouldn't work mm -hmm. that you know that what would they have in common it has to be exclusive yeah 
So, so I'm wondering, so, you know, okay, I, am, I, I don't know Shayla Ben-Habib well. Um, she came to give a talk at Northwestern, but I remember asking her a question, you know, doesn't this all presume, you know, the nation state and what if we need to critique how the nation state organizes the world? And she rather, it felt glib to me. She's just like, well, the nation state's what we got. And so unless you have a better idea, and I'm like, okay, where's the radical openness? And so it just seems to me that like the ontological characteristics that she's given is supposed to be this openness to, to the new, and yet it's not supposed to be so open. Its borders have to be protected. Yeah, and I don't mean borders like nation state borders necessarily, but she's very clear that this space is fragile and that you, know, you need to keep out elements that don't properly belong there. And it sometimes feels to me that those who are very into a rent, they want to skip over her saying that and say, but actually, but like the common is great. But she doesn't mean common is universal, though, does she? No, it's an exclusive common. In order to be a common, it has to. Be, you can't fit everybody at the table, right? If the table gets too big, too, then certain people can't see each other or relate to one another. I think it has to be. And this is why, again, she's so into the etymology of enclosure in all of these words that we have for town and city, is that it has to be exclusive. I don't know. I, I guess, like, I wonder if part of it is is it's not that she has a vision of a kind of open political sphere in any kind of concrete way, but that she is offering the resources to allow us to understand what it looks like when those spheres are closed off, right? And, you know, she's very much, like, evil is, a, is one of the concepts that she returns to over and over in her work. And so it might be that there's, like, a negative index of what totalitarianism does to us when it closes, you know, when it renders yeah. man superfluous, as she describes in, nice. in yeah. Origins of Totalitarianism, right? Or that it, or when even when modern capitalist societies inflate the social and make it the whole of our existence, right? Like it's mm -hmm. all just private realm and social, right? It's all our family life, our personal life with friends, our work, our consumption. And, and that, is, that is like what 99.999% of our lives under, you know, it, it is the usurpation, like the total evacuation yeah. of, the, of any kind of political sphere or public. And so I wonder if like for her, it, there, there's a kind of negative, it's a negative index rather than a kind of positive political program right. in a certain way, right? Like, this is what evil okay. looks like. It looks like this kind of closure, right? It looks like the prevention where everybody, like, she might look at us and say, oh, yeah, okay, maybe there's something a little elitist in my rendering of the political sphere, something that's But consider exclusive. the alternative, yeah. But consider the alternative. You yeah. guys don't even have that. Everybody just works. <laughs> you don't every, even have elitism. You don't even have an like, elite sphere of, 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 like, public action. <laughs> All you have is just people working and consuming. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and that's it. And then doing national Slaves housekeeping. Slaves to, to the, their necessity and the products of their own labors. Yeah. Y'all just a bundle like of behaviors. Of yeah. Yeah. Does this feel like freedom to you? Like, <laughs> sure so does like, like, fair, fair, right? Fair. Yeah. And the problem <laughs> is also point. that, like, I, I think that's what, right, what you said, Owen, the negative index thing. Because the problem with, like, Adam Smith and Marx, um, and Marx most of all, is that they lean into that. Right. They like they lean into mm -hmm. um, the idea of the socialized man yeah. is even worse to her than like the she has this great mm. footnote where she's like Marx made us into socialized men, which is even worse than Adam Smith, who started it all <laughs> because he said we were economic men. But now we're socialized men. And that's one further. So the problem with Marx is that he leans too hard into modernity, basically. And mm -hmm. what comes out the other side is totalitarianism. So for her, if that's the limit case, um, and obviously it's fascism, but I think it's interesting that in most of her work, the focus is on communism. I just want to flag that. Like, mm -hmm, I, yeah. I know the origins of totalitarianism is preoccupied with the rise of fascism and communism, and maybe even more particularly with fascism. I think in much of her later work, she is really focused on communism. And mm -hmm. I think that, like, that's just important to know that the negative limit case for her, it's, mm. it's like communism, you know, it's really the specter that haunts this whole book. The whole discourse is a dialogue with Marx. It's like this is with, about Marx. The chapter about action is about Marx. The chapter about labor is about Marx. And the problem with Marx is he cannot make these distinct, distinctions that she's talking about. 
and therefore communism as the emancipatory project. And I just want to clarify because I know fascism is very important to her. That's what the whole thesis about the banality of evil and the Eichmann scandal and everything was about. But it was. But I'm saying that when she that the reason she focuses on Marx and Marxism and communism is because that is the only option that plausibly presents itself as an emancipatory project. No one thinks mm-hmm. that fascism is an emancipatory project, so she has to focus on discrediting the left yeah. because that nice. is what ca- gives really the possible alternative. Yeah. Totally. No, and I think that you're right, that this is in so many ways a dialogue with Marx, and like we could even frame it as they're departing from a shared set of premises, in a sense here, right? Where like, if we think that freedom, like politics is the space of freedom, and we like it, it's good, action, you know, expression, political speech, you know, distinguishing oneself, like that's all great. That is, as Arendt herself says, and which is a very Marxist sort of idea, possible only on the basis of the fact that your needs are met in the first place, right? That like this like sphere of necessity stuff has already been taken care of, right? And the Marxist point to make here is like, yeah, that ain't the case for like almost anyone under capitalism, right? And it's as though she reads that and is like, yeah, but isn't it cool that some people still can, you know? Like, what, you know, <laughs> and it's like, I, I guess it <laughs> is, it's not me. not cool. It's not <laughs> it's not, not cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. but also like, how about the sphere of necessity? Why have we just kind of presumed that to be taken care of? I wonder if there's anywhere where she's, where she specifically says that the idea that you could have a whole society or a whole body politic like liberated from necessity like is utopian or something. I go, I wonder if she's ever just come out and said, it's like an ontological fact of like social ontology that there has to be a class of people that take care of necessities so that other people Mm -hmm. can have a space of freedom. Well, it's almost like they're in the margins, right? Like there's a, there's like a, I think it's a footnote in this and it's, it's kind of shocking, right? Cause this is one of the things that people always say when it's like, you know, we're reading these like ancient Greek political philosophers and then mm-hmm. someone comes along and snarkily is like, well, you know, they were a slave society, right? As though like, this is immediately discrediting, but like, given that this is, yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> and we, and we're not about that stuff here on the pod, as you know, that we think that's a silly Own generally speaking. No, oh, no, wait, was also that not... not the position of the pod. Disavow the room. That's what he says <laughs> to yeah, his other you know what? philosophy yeah, that's friends. That's right. Uh, and you know what's nice yes. about politics is we can distinguish ourselves from one another. So I hereby disavow and distinguish myself from Will Paris. Uh, <laughs> oh, I see you. Hi. <laughs> yeah, you see me. Uh, but no, but like given that this is her conception of politics is like, you know, appearing in public and then like the specific model is like the Greek polis. She She says it. She's like, yeah, and this was never meant to be for everyone. And there were a slave-owning society. Most of the people weren't allowed to be a part of it. It was like a small minority of like yeah, maybe male that's one landowner. of the problems with like nostalgia for ancient Greece and trying to like you know ground a contemporary political vision in like an ancient Greek slave society. Like you know, Adorno takes a different tack. I can't remember where he says this, but he's you know he's like yeah you know obviously freedom acquires li- being liberated from necessity and like because I'm not talking about the ancient Greeks, but I'm talking about 1960. Isn't it amazing that we have the technical capacity, right? Like actual te- this agricultural is the historical capacity, materialist insight, to, yeah. to actually end like the, our total yeah. dependence on meeting our needs all the time, and uh, and you know that's a different tack. Or you can say that like the the Greeks were lit because they they built a sick wall and kept every all the pores out. <laughs> I mean, like, what's so funny? You're killing me. What, what's what's so funny while reading this? You know, when the rent writes, poverty forces the free man to act like a slave. Private wealth therefore became a condition for admission to public life, not because its owner was engaged in c- accumulating, but on the contrary, because it assured with reasonable certainty that its owner would not have to engage in providing for himself the means of use and consumption, <laughs> and was free for public activity. I'm like, you're so like, close. Yeah, yeah. You're so close. And, based the rent. Base the rent. Go. Go, go. And what's the next sentence? Oh, no. Did you memorize what the next line was? No, I just had the same exact Public life obviously was possible only after the er the much more urgent needs of life itself have been taken care of. And she goes on to say, uh, yeah, that that wasn't for everybody. (laughs) Oh, wow, that's so funny that you went in then. And then I looked at it and I was like, Oh, yeah, okay. But, like, she's so close, and she's so close. And so it seems to me, if she didn't have to freight it with all this ontology that for some reason, you know, someone argued to me, rather than it being cool, why it has to be rooted in what the Greeks did. I get it. It's really cool to write things in Greek and not transliterate it, because, you know, <laughs> that, that shows how awesome you are. 
But like, yo, give me the argument though. Cause if you had done away with this, then you could actually have an argument where in everyone should be able to appear because their needs have been met. And then we can see what politics arises once people are, are free to engage with one another and bring something new into the world. But then, but by framing this ontological, you know, it's because, oh, and the problem is, you know, sure, meeting everyone's needs, but as soon as you make that a political project mm. in order to make that the aim of doing that, then she has an issue. Well, that's because it can't assumption. be communism. <laughs> well, no, because yeah, because I guess we've decided it can't be communism. That's she means doesn't have a positive end. content. Yeah. She certainly has a positive content for what she doesn't want. What she does want gymnastics in the polis. Well, this is exactly the this is exactly like like the difference between having a materialist and a non-materialist like approach to history, right? Like when Marx reads Aristotle's political works in Capital One, he's like, look how much this dude could figure out. Pretty cool. And also he couldn't figure out certain things precisely because he lived in a society whose mode of production was essentially slave owning. So he was constrained in what he was able to think and conceive. Right. And like now, 200 years of the development of the modes of production and the forces of production into capitalism, we could just do away with the necessity stuff. We could do, we could end it, abolish it. <laughs> it, it instead of making it an ontologically unsurpassable fact. I don't know. Well, and well, another symptom of the ontological kind of closing off or fencing off of these different spheres is like, I just don't think it's very historically accurate that like this is what emancipatory movements that are built around meeting human needs actually look like. Like she makes it sound like when there's a movement that is organized around like meeting basic needs or about like guaranteeing the material conditions of life or something that it's just people going, I'm hungry. Like, give me, give me the food. I want a bigger, you know, oh, I want a bigger cookie share. monster. Yeah, like, exactly. Cookie monster that, in politics. <laughs> exactly. And I'm like, what? well, okay. I, I, I think you'd be pretty hard pressed to find any movement over the last like hundred, 150 years where material stakes were in play, where all, where, where there wasn't all of this other stuff that she considers to be politics like going on, right? Like the elements of like appearing of like great words of, you know, incredible great speeches, words, yeah. like, you know, deeds that aren't just exhausted in their accomplishment kind of thing, ways of immortalizing ourselves, right? She's really into like political really immortality, this, yes. like ways of immortalizing ourselves in a, and creating a public through that immortalization and all of that. Like I just like the building of public infrastructure and spaces and for, for political and public activity. Like, I just don't know what, I just don't know what she, I mean, she doesn't really talk about any emancipatory movements in most of her work. And she talks about the French revolution, but only to kind of trash it in favor of the American revolution. Yeah. I mean, I just wonder who she was talking to or like on the reflections of Little Rock, like why didn't she just get on the subway, go talk to James Baldwin and like, you know, you might have, and like how the story, she does engage with James Baldwin she oh, really? uh, hated the fire next time. She oh. was re she uh, quote was terrified <laughs> oh, no, don't, don't by the tell invocation me this, of. I'm, I wrote a whole paper on this. Terrified by the invocation of love at the end of, oh, of the fire that's... next time because wherever there's love, there is destruction of all I'm... that is political. And uh, Baldwin apparently responded with, he's just like, I just don't think Arendt understood very well what I was doing. <laughs> that's like, a good like. So good she response. tries to engage. Okay, she tries, but it's yeah. just like, you know, and look, I, I don't want to let, you know, well, no, I do want to dunk on Arendt. But I just want to say that it's not about Arendt the person. I don't know what was in her heart and all of that. That's in that shadow realm. I only know how she appeared in political space. And it seems to me that all of these categories Get her. really mutilated her, her political vision, especially when it comes to the United States, where she didn't understand. She was new and she had no yeah. clue on like, you know, how deep this was. She's just like, in Europe, we don't do this. This is weird. Anyway, here are my yeah. thoughts. Listen, I just look, this is not a sophisticated point, but if you read The Fire Next Time and you get to the end of it where he's talking about love and your reaction is terror, something has gone wrong. I I don't know what else to say than that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so beautiful. You, you went down the wrong path at some point. Some you made a turn somewhere. Yeah, her uh she, yeah, she's super anti-love appearing in, in any kind of political valence whatsoever. But Fair enough. I hate PDA too. Okay? <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan. I like keeping, I'm not a fan. I, but my, my private stuff's private still, by yeah. the way. Yeah. You don't think it is? <laughs> can, we talk, can we talk about, can we talk just for a minute about the French Revolution thing, though? Because I know that you all have thoughts about the way that she understands the French Revolution, and I kind of want to hear your takes. I mean, I was just looking, looking through the, uh, the On Revolution book. 
before we were recording today. Nice. And, you know, it's just quickly going to the spots I remember her discussing the French Revolution and the American Revolution, which she privileges over the French Revolution, precisely because one of the reasons, you know, she likes republics, so she's a republican of sorts. Um, but also, like, the, I think when we're trying to, like, reach for examples of what political action looks like for her, the writing of the, the drafting of the Constitution and the, mm the kind of political dynamic at stake amongst the founding fathers of the United States for her is pretty emblematic of, mm-hmm. of what, uh, yeah, nice. of what politics looks like. And, you know, their constitution, she shares with Kant, like a nice fondness for founding constitutions and thinking about constitutions. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when she talks about the French revolution, it's that these like massive herds of poor who for centuries have existed in obscurity were bringing their like social all of a sudden make their appearance. Yeah, they in make their appearance on the political stage, and it just wrecks everything. Like that's not who's supposed to be acting in the political sphere. And says what? And she says it's not coincidental that that's why you get terror, right? You get violence mm-hmm. because you, the yeah. sphere of necessity has entered into the public sphere where it's not supposed to be. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a in some ways it's a pretty classically conservative uh, view of the of the French Revolution, but the privileging of the American Revolution is special. I think... Say what you mean. <laughs> so here's the um, interesting thing. I'll just tell you my experience in reading Arendt because I, I, you know, somebody who has been received and aimed to be uncategorizable, you know, I'm never going to convince anybody of my own reading. But first of all, I mean, I, I just like despite... I just loathe people who think they can't be put into categori- categories. Um, Love a good category. Yeah, I love a good category. Big uh, bad. Yeah, un- unsurprisingly. Put me in a box. Yeah, like I mean, I'm such. I a, feel comfortable in the box. Yeah, I like the box. I'm such a troll about Marxism because you put your, you know, in my case, because you put yourself in categories because it's a response to other things, and there's something cowardly to me about hiding your mm-hmm. own uh, mm-hmm. views. Like I, I really um, can't stand it, and I think that. A lot gets going for people with Arendt when you get, because she creates this opportunity to sort of hide your views. And to her own credit, she does offer them, and they are wanting, as Will has described it in detail. (laughs) So I'm not saying that she's always cowardly. I'm just saying that there is something um, about the, the uptick of her. We're at the end of ideologies, and I... Um, like a rent impossible to categorize. And um, I think that's true of her. I just don't have that much. I just don't have any to just to be blunt. I don't have much sympathy for this, but like in my reading of her, when I started reading her in grad school, I remember I did find her very compelling and I, I was in a different place intellectually. And I did like that about her at first. And I found it very mysterious and provocative. And, you know, the conversation, is she Republican? Is she a liberal? Is she, you know, of the left? Is she critical theorist? Is she this? Is she that? You know, just kind of. And then I, I had this, the, for the first time, I had this experience that you can only have when you realize that somebody you're talking to has a political perspective that you just haven't really seen in real life before. There's this moment which people kind of puncture the ideological sphere and they're not recognizable anymore because they're saying something that actually is recognizable but within a different ideological configuration and Mm. when I realized that I was like holy shit she's actually a capital C conservative because if your whole orientation is against the French Revolution to me that's that's the archetype of what it means to be a conservative in the modern era but that has to be qualified because you know, she's clearly a conservative that's made her peace with the – is approving of the liberal state and so on. But she's not the only conservative to do that. Most conservatives today ad- accept that, the liberal state in some form, in whatever, you know, in whatever capacity and some more tenuously than others. But like, you know, Edmund Burke came to terms with liberalism. He was just like, we have to do right. it piecemeal and gradually and everything. So – it's possible to accept that and have her whole thing about plurality, but if your primary orientation is like the French Revolution is where things went wrong, to me that's just, and then your whole thing is about the Greeks and all the stuff we've discussed, I, I think it's a conservative view at, 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 at its base. Well, no, but I, I mean, I think that that links up with the, the observation you made, Lillian, which I think is right, that 
lurking in the background is really communism, right? And despite the work directly on on fascism that she's done, that you know, when she describes some of these concerns in the human condition about like aspects of modernity, it always feels to me like she thinks they're way worse in like bureaucratized societies as she understands it in like under mm-hmm. communism, right? Like it's the, that's the paradigmatic example of what the takeover of the social looks like of what even the obliteration of the private sphere, which he says happens under, you know, in totalitarianism as well. Like you have the, there you have the total destruction of where the, the dividing lines between the different realms of human existence should be. Um, and that it, it's also happening in like 1950s America and in capitalist Europe, but to a lesser extent, and we should be on guard against becoming, you know, <laughs> against basically falling into the very worst, right? The, the total scrambling of, like, you know, the proper ontologically determined way that these spheres should be carved up. So, I mean, I think that, yeah, I mean, I think the anti-communism is, is a central motor of, of the thought. I just want to say this before we end, like there, there are things about Arendt. I was also into Arendt in, for a while and I wrote my master's on um, Arendt and her reading of Kant, my master's thesis and Kant's aesthetics, especially. And like in a kind of naive, almost way where like pre-critical way where I suspend my theoretical or, and political orientations, I genuinely think that she's, she's really right and grasps something really right about humans and about some of the needs that we have that outstrip our just like material needs, the things that distinguish us from animal life. And, and it's the way that it all gets parsed, reified, that drives me nuts, right? So um, <laughs> yeah, maybe and on that uh, positive note. But. <laughs> that's a shame because I, I was actually going to just do uh, one last dunk but maybe we should, you know, call it on a positive note. <laughs> Those of you who are interested in my one last dunk, though, I don't understand. Oh, I guess I'm doing it. You guys are going for it. We need one last dunk. For, you know, those who take a rent very seriously, and I kind of said this earlier, but, you know, I think it's important to just really put a pin on this. Who take her, her seriously on her notion of the, the political as appearing before others. And then when, you know, whenever she's dealing with American politics, especially anything having to do with black political movements, you know, she reads them as, you know, havoc and chaos. Look mm-hmm. at, you know, on violence, you know, where That's she has another. a footnote. Now they yeah. want to have Swahili in college. You know, this is a complete degradation of the political project. I, I don't know how many people were actually, you know, demanding Swahili. But I want to know how they deal with the fact that she makes appearance <laughs> so, so important. You know, so many, so many. That's you know, that's all that they were talking about in the 1970s, I guess. <laughs> you know, appearance is so important to her, and it's not metaphysical. It is literal. She says it herself that you know you can't just skip over color. It's inalterable for Negroes, etc. How do they explain why any time there is you know, um, a black political movement that she's commenting on, she reads as distinctly non-political, illicit, and you know, as you know, fundamentally disorder or disorder? Same for the women's movement. Like mm. she, oh. that's what she thinks about the feminist yeah. movement as well. Yeah. Yeah, and so and obviously the workers. Think, yeah. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind all of social all of them, yeah? and social climbing. It's, it, it, yeah. it, it, it's all of them, and so it's like yeah. all the, you know. It starts to look like for someone for whom appearance is so important, she has this very constrained idea of you know, who ought to appear, what appearance looks political, and what appearance doesn't. And so you can blame that on her foibles. You can blame that on well, where nobody's perfect, but she makes appearance so central. And I'm wondering how do you explain that and this is the angle I come at the rent with what I do in philosophy of race and I've not read anyone who has actually been able to salvage that beyond saying like I guess she didn't get what was going on oops but that doesn't get around the issue that appearance is so important but that doesn't rescue them because she says the same like I said I I think you're right about color and her approach to black movements but if you want to say she didn't know what was going on, do you think she didn't understand feminism? Like, especially of the European variety of her generation? Like, you think she didn't get what was at stake for women in the household? I mean, she's a, you know, yeah. maybe not as much as others, but, you know, like, you know, yeah. there's a way in which, like, how deep does the not getting it go? And, you know, <laughs> I went to the, yeah, I went yeah, to that's, the That's um, a nice exhibit. diplomatic Ooh. way of putting it. Yeah. And like I went to the um, Hannah Arendt exhibit at the German Historical Museum here in in Berlin. They had a special exhibit. And one of the things, you know, they had one of her interviews um, and she was just talking about how, you know, she's not 
hostile to feminism, but she just says that's not her thing. She says, you know, there's just some things for women that I think are unfeminine or undecent. And maybe I'm wrong about that, but that's just what I think. So, you know, appearances, you know, it's, it's, it comes out in in different ways. And I I totally agree with you about color, but I just wanted to raise that that's like, she's, it's reflected across different movements. No, I just think if there is one way maybe to save, just to refer back to our episode last week, is that if there is one way to save like the appearance thing, it's something like Rancière's account of the distribution of the sensible, right? The, obviously, appearing is a really important and central dimension of politics, but the strictures on who appears what way and how s- people appear as being capable or incapable of certain things or as deserving of certain kinds of treatment versus other kinds of treatment. I mean, the distribution, the conditions of appearance, the historical conditions of that appearing like have to be accounted for. You can't just have a, this is the problem with the, I keep going back to this, but with ontologizing politics and creating spheres, like there's the sphere of of appearance. Okay. I mean, what are like, what, what are its dynamics? I mean, how, how does it, how is it altered? How has it changed? Like who changes the terms and how can the terms with which people appear change? Like, I don't know. You see what I mean? Yeah, Yeah, totally. And this is, this is like what I was saying before about how, like, I'm not sure that there's a way once we draw these distinctions, the way that we've done here with the rent between like the political on the one hand, and let's add the the, the qualifier and the merely social on the other hand, Mm -hmm. right? That like, I don't know if you're going to be able to use these categories in a way that's other than conservative, right? Basically in this disqualifying gesture. So it's not surprising to me that once these are the sorts of conceptual apparatuses that we've kind of set up, that when we see like, how did she actually read workers' struggles, women's uh, movement, the black movement in America, it's like all merely social, like non-political, but like, that's what the conceptual apparatus allows you to say. I'm not sure it lets you say anything positive. And and confused and chaotic, right? There's that great moment in um, the reflections of Little Rock. It's actually her little preface to it where she describes, you know, why she wrote it. And she says, uh, you know, I know that some people are saying that, you know, interracial marriage isn't the most important thing for the black community. But listen, what you need to understand is that oppressed people often don't understand themselves like what's best for them. Okay, and so, you know, we're going to have to. And she just moves on. Yeah, exactly. Just moves on. We can't trust their account of what, you know, of what they think they need or what's best for them. (laughs) Yeah. It's just me in my apartment. You can trust me. (laughs) I get it. Well. On that note, that does it for us today. I hope y'all still with us. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks wherever you get your podcasts. Also, check us out on YouTube for videos and live streams. Before closing out today, we'd like to take a minute to thank some of the people who are supporting the show on Patreon. We couldn't do this without you, and we're really grateful. Today's new patrons are William Craven, Jenny Logan, Paco Brito, Michael Mellett, Oliver Mann, Jonathan Fisher, David Gerhardt, Ben Dunn, B, Mark Muchain, We've Improved, Anthony Morgan, Patrick, Piyush Pushkar, Pat Malone, David Moser, B, KM, Eric Walter, Nicholas O'Connor. Thank you all very much. If you, too, like what we're doing and want to support the show, please subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leftofphilosophy. Patrons get access to exclusive content like locked episodes and bonus videos. And please follow us on Twitter at leftofphil. And don't forget to leave us good reviews and comments on your podcast app. With that, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Thanks.